Later on, I'll talk to Kevin Collison of City Scene KC about the possibility of the Royals moving downtown. But first, joining me, uh, as usual, is Sean Newkirk. Sean, how are you doing tonight? Good. I am not moving downtown. You're not moving downtown. You still live downtown, didn't you? I did, yep. So you're moving out of downtown. The Royals might be moving downtown. So some might say you don't like the Royals? Yeah, that's that's how I would put it. That's the flow. Also joining us not downtown is Craig Brown. Craig, how are you doing tonight? <laughs> Good, Max. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, well, you know, it was a pretty big week of news for the Royals, uh, considering they're way back uh, in the standings. The big news, of course, was the announcement that the team is uh, for sale and sold to local businessman John Sherman for $1 billion. The news was confirmed by the club on Friday, and the sale will be made official when the owners approve it in November, which should just be a formality at that point. Sherman is an entrepreneur who started two energy energy companies. He's not really a big headline maker, uh, but he has reportedly been very instrumental in civic and philanthropic circles around Kansas City. He's a season ticket holder and a Royals fan, and he owns a 30% share of the Cleveland Indians, which uh, he will have to sell that to own the Royals. So, Craig, the change of ownership brings a lot of uncertainty to the to the to Royals fans, I think. But you wrote last week that this turn of events is actually a good thing for the Royals. Can you explain a little bit why you think that, and what are you kind of expecting out of the Sherman era? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it, it's a pretty complicated issue, I think, Max. But but it is it is a good thing, uh, you know, just kind of based on. Uh, David Glass's age, his you know what what he's put into the team, you know especially at this point in the you know what I like to call the process 2.0. Um, it's just it kind of feels like it's time to get some new blood out of Kauffman Stadium. It affects the general manager, the manager ownership. You know I, I think Royal fans in general are just kind of up for anything. We've we've had 20 years of David Glass, uh, plenty of lows. A couple of you know really great highs, obviously. Uh, so it's been kind of a mixed bag. But I also kind of approached it as, you know, the fact that that David Glass is selling the team to somebody and not passing it into the family, keeping it in the Glass family, Dan Glass in particular, I think is a really really good thing for the city. Um, I think that John Sherman, with his you know civic ties with his, uh, you know, philanthropic nature, uh, the fact that he has, has created a couple of successful energy businesses from scratch, the fact that he is already a minor- minority owner of the Indians, as you mentioned, uh, so he kind of has, quote, unquote, you know, a little bit of hands-on experience, and, and they really talked him up in Cleveland as, you know, yeah, he was a minority owner, but, but you know, uh, he, he was like, he, he was involved, he is involved. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that uh, the, the, the Royals in Kansas City uh, are, are really fortunate to have somebody like Sherman coming in. Um, you know, of course, we're, we're kind of in the honeymoon phase, but it, it just it, it seems like a, a really best case scenario uh, for the team and for the city and for, for the fan base. I, I think, uh, you know, a, a lot of uncertainty ahead. Yes. But, um, you know, it's an exciting time. And Sean, the news I think caught a lot of people by surprise, and I think because because what Craig mentioned, you know, I think a lot of people expected Dan Glass to kind of eventually own the club. Uh, I know we're kind of speculating; we don't have a lot of inside information on what's going on with the Glass family. But what's which kind of your working hypothesis and why 
maybe Dan Glass is not the next owner of the club. And, and what's kind of your take on John Sherman and what what you uh, are expecting out of his tenure as he takes over as owner? Yeah, I mean, I I wish they would have said it was up for sale. I would have thrown my bid in. I'm kind of <laughs> upset that they didn't let us know. But all right, whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of optimistic about Sherman, um, if only because the Indians are fairly uh, advanced when it comes to analytics, and um, Sherman's from there. And as you mentioned um, in your article, Max, like when the news kind of first broke about Sherman, was that yeah, I mean, he's read the MVP. Did he read the MVP machine? He, he he's, he's read the, some- uh, it. Was big. Was it the Travis Sawchuk's oh, book? Yeah, uh, that's right, the big data book. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, so we read that, and um, so that's great. And Indians have been, you know, a, a typically good team for the past five years or give or take and, and, and draft well mostly. So um, I'm, I'm happy about that. I'm optimistic in that sense. Um, I don't know why I didn't go to Dan. I mean, I guess the thought was like, I think someone, uh, so like if uh, <laughs> it reminded me a bit of like inception where they wanted him to break up the company. So to be his own man, I don't quite think that's what was in play. I don't think anybody inceptioned anything into uh, David Glass's head, but I think it was from some, uh, gosh, who mentioned it? Someone on, on Twitter, a, a, a blue check mark, a verified person on Twitter, I'll say, kind of talked about how they felt like Dan or David kind of kind of wanted his son to kind of do his own thing necessarily, not have mm-hmm. to feel burdened about having the, the franchise and have to run it or keep it in the family. Um, I don't know if there's even really been that, many, that much dynastic uh, ownership are there any owners out there that have kind of just been legacy owners passed down? It feels like that's not a thing, really, with baseball. Uh, the, the Steinbrenners in New York, and I guess yeah. the, um, Illich, when Mike Illich passed away, his son took over. Yep. But yeah, okay. I don't, I don't know if that happens a lot. And I, there's probably tax implications there that we may not be aware yeah. of, and that may make it more sure. complicated. Um, but yeah, I think, I, you know, I think, you know, there's, there's a couple things. I think Sam Mellinger wrote that uh, Glass was kind of seen as not Dan Glass was seen as not kind of up for the job like he wasn't really ownership material which um you know his dad was a ceo of a, the biggest corporation in the world walmart whereas dan glass i think his business experience is like running a jewelry store and a video store and and, and then working with the royals you know and he's worked you know he's worked a lot with the royals for the last 20 years, years. Yeah. yeah and on both the baseball operations and, and business side of it i don't know how how much he's really contributing or not. He may be contributing a lot. Maybe he's just kind of showing up and, and being like a Tommy boy uh, in the office. But, um, but yeah, he's got experience with the team. So I was a little, a little surprised. Um, there's just a possibility that he just wasn't interested. You know, maybe he's got, like you said, he kind of wants to make his own mark and do his own thing. And, and, and I would certainly understand that. So, uh, yeah. so but any, in any case, David Glass is getting out uh, after 20 years. Uh, it does seem like Sherman is kind of handpicked as a successor. Like, I, I guess the – what John Heyman was reporting the other day is uh, that Sherman was kind of handpicked and, and, and approached the Royals a couple of years ago about possibly getting in on the ownership group. And, and at the time he was rebuffed, but, but glass uh, reflected a few years later. And, and I think, you know, the, the succession plan with Ewing Kaufman weighed a little bit on David glass's mind. I mean, it, you know, there was, uh, you know, not confusion, but a little bit of a, a, a lost period there where the team was, was, was not owned really by anyone. They're owned by, uh, a limited partnership that was re- operated by David Glass, and that that really hurt the club there for for a good five years. And it took a while for them to dig, to dig out of that. And I think maybe David Glass was looking for a little bit better situation for the Royals to be in once he gave up the team. And it seems like Sherman could be that opportunity. Um, you know, the, the future, like I said, does leave a lot of uncertainty. But I think one of the big uncertainties is where does this leave Dayton Moore? 
Um, you know, certainly we've seen owners come in and maybe clean house, Craig. Uh, what are you kind of expecting with, with uh, John Sherman and Dayton Moore? Is that a relationship that um, is going to continue going forward, or do you see Sherman maybe kind of bringing his own guy in there? Well, you know, I, I, I listened to the, the, the pertinent part of the John Heyman podcast where he dropped the nugget that Dayton Moore currently has a contract that runs past 2020, which is different from what we all thought. We, we thought that, you know, w- when he signed an extension back in 2016 after the World Series championship, that it just went to 2020 and that was it. But, but apparently he signed an extension after the Braves asked for permission to talk to him and the Glass family denied that permission, uh, which, okay, that makes a little bit of sense. Um, you know, I, I, it's really hard to say, you know, we, we don't have any kind of a track record from Sherman, you know, as to what he would do when he comes into, you know, a business. Um, you know, one thing that, that kind of popped into my, my mind is I'm, I'm sure that they know each other. I'm sure that they're acquainted, you know, through some of the probably philanthropic, you know, endeavors that they, they have each undertaken in Kansas City because we know that Dayton Moore is very active in the community. And, you know, what kind of makes sense, you know, Sherman will, will probably want to bring in a lot of his own people, but, you know, rapid change in this sort of situation never, you know, really seems to make a lot of sense. You know, it, it should probably be something kind of gradual. I can I can see a scenario, and I'm just spitballing here, that where, you know, Dayton Moore gets, gets a bump. Uh, he becomes, you know, president, and then, you know, that allows Sherman and his people, along with some input from uh, from um, Dayton Moore, you know, the the, the ability to, to pick a new general manager and new leadership in, you know, the day-to-day operations of the club. Um, you know, it also gives Dayton the opportunity to move on, maybe, if he, if he wants to, uh, and, and do something, you know, outside of baseball or, or, or find another general manager job. Um, you know, I, I, I'm really kind of, I'm, I'm torn as, as to where it will go. Um, I, I, I think though that, that at least in the short term and, and so, you know, I'm, I'm talking a couple of years here, I think Dayton's still within some capacity. Um, and, and I think that, uh, you know, that, that, that's probably a good thing. I think we'll probably see an access to people in days when, when new ownership comes in, just people looking for other opportunities. Um, you know, and you know, we'll we'll see some some new blood brought in too, which is you know part of what makes it all exciting. We've we've kind of you know the Royals have been one of the most stable franchises in baseball. You know, they've, they've had the same owner for twenty plus years. General managers been around for now like thirteen. Uh, Ned Yost has been managing the team eight nine years. I mean, th- this team is is just it's it's as stable as you can find in, in Major League Baseball. So, uh, you know, Ned was kind of at the end of the line anyway. Uh, Dayton's been around for, for a while. And at some point, you know, with leadership, it just kind of makes sense anyway. The, the message just gets kind of stale. So, you know, hitting the refresh button isn't a bad thing. Uh, so, you know, we've got the new owner. And we're probably going to get a new uh, GM and, and manager here in a couple of years. Yeah, that stability can be a good thing, I think, in some good times. But sometimes it can lead to, you know, a little, maybe complacency or maybe, the, you know, like you said, the message getting a little stale. Uh, and we'll see. I mean, I support, according to Heyman, uh, Sherman is a, an admirer of Dayton Moore, and certainly you can understand that. He did win a championship. He's done a lot of great things for Kansas City off the field. Uh, but, Sean, I mean, what, what, do you, what do you kind of make of this front office going forward? You know, that we may see a situation where, 
you know, with, with Miami, they didn't fire general manager Mike Hill, but they did fire a number of other front exe- front uh, office executives. And there was a shakeup, definitely a big shakeup, but a big organizational shift in their philosophy. Um, and, you know, could this be something where Dayton more stays, but they just have a different uh, direction? Uh, or, uh, you know, will this marriage work? Or is Dayton more uh, perhaps off for, for, for bigger things in, uh, outside of Kansas City? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of really like two things. I mean, if I think I think there's a possibility that even if uh, Sherman elects to keep more around, that doesn't mean that more is going to stay. Maybe more looks for other stuff somewhere else. Like you guys had mentioned, maybe he goes to be the president of baseball ops somewhere. Um, a common, you know, obviously jumping off point. I mean, I think effectively, I think the issue would be even if he were a lot of those president president of baseball ops jobs are just title inflations. Mm-hmm. And so like, yeah, Theo Epstein is the president of baseball operations with the Cubs, but I mean, he's the de facto general manager. Um, it, it's just to allow guys to, because you typically don't see a general manager go take another general manager job unless he's fired. He has to be moved up higher. Um, so it kind of prevents like Piccolo from going somewhere else. He would, if he gets promoted general manager, he may not still be running the day to day in the way that more, uh, would be doing if he were president of baseball ops. So I think I think that's a possibility. Um, but like I said, I think more could go somewhere else. I don't think he's ever going to be a general manager anywhere else. I think he would go be a president of baseball ops or um, a senior advisor uh, or, or something there. I mean, you know, he's been in baseball for 30 years or whatever. So in 13 of them now being the, the main decision maker. And so, you know, a lot of guys, not that I would call retirement, but he may eventually be looking for a job that's a little more relaxed. That's like an advisor capacity rather than being the, the, the kind of the head decision maker and have all that pressure on him. I don't think that's um, unreasonable, but I think I, I'm not in like camp burn it all down, but I am in camp like, Hey, we probably, I think it would benefit having a new general manager um, to, someone that Sherman can bring in someone that Sherman's vetted um, and, you know, fits maybe Sherman's, uh, it, we don't know what it is yet, but fits Sherman's vision, I would say. Well, part of the uh, knock on John, uh, David Glass, at least early on in his tenure was that he was kind of a cheap owner and, 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 you know, he carried that reputation, I think from his Walmart days where he was known as for being a very ruthless cost cutter, but certainly in the early days of his ownership of the Royals, he was, he was quite a penny pincher. Uh, and now with John Sherman, I think a lot of Royals fans are kind of hopeful maybe the team can operate, I guess, with a little more cash flow. But, but Craig, is that a reasonable expectation? I mean, they're still kind of a small market team. Um, you know, I know we don't we don't we don't know a lot. This is you know John Sherman's kind of a blank slate. But what are you kind of expecting as far as payroll in the next couple of years with John Sherman taking over? Yeah, I mean, I I think that the the payroll that that we see now it'll it'll pretty much hold steady uh you know l- l- like you said it's it's a it's a small market situation i mean an owner isn't gonna is it gonna impact the market size at all there's certain constraints that are built in when you come into kansas city that, that other markets don't have I, I mean yeah they're 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 gonna get the new tv contract new owner you know may want to make an initial splash and you know uh, go big and in, in like a free agency you know kind of deal uh get get a get a, a big name in uh to to kind of you know juice up the fan base a little bit more opening day, day payroll this year was around 100 million first time in like four years that it was below 100 million um 
you know, I, I think that where it is right now is, is kind of reasonable, especially, you know, given where, you know, you know the, the state of the franchise overall. Uh, you got Alex Gordon coming off the books this year. You got Ian Kennedy coming off the books next year. There, there's there's a little a little leeway to spend, uh, you know. So the opportunity is there probably, but I I, I don't think that we're, that we're going to see anything, you know, where where, where you kind of snap your head and go, whoa, that this guy's come in and he, he's the anti David Glass. I mean, Glass certainly earned that reputation of being cheap. He was, you know, he oversaw basically the the teardown of this franchise after the strike in 1994. And, you know, he oversaw the, the, the deals that, you know, trading off Johnny Damon, Jermaine Dye, Carlos Beltran, uh, you know, the rumor is, is that Beltran was ready to sign an extension and glass demanded that they lop a million dollars off the deal and Beltran, you know, walked away and, you know, was, was never going to sign an extension after that. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of stories like that from, from glass in the nineties. Um, you know, it just, uh, but you know, uh, as, as time evolved and with Dayton Moore here, he, he became, you know, basically a different owner and, and a, and a better owner. Uh, I think, uh, you know, we, we've kind of had the, the yin and the yang in Kansas city, Ewing Kaufman, who was writing bonuses out of his own checkbook for crying out loud. Uh, you know, and then you had Glass cutting the cost right behind him. You know, maybe Sherman is somewhere in between. Uh, you know, the 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 benevolent owner and the uh, the penurious owner. Uh, I, I, I I I you know, but sorry, long answer, rambling here. You know, let's let's shoot for the target a hundred million dollars in the in the first couple of years of the, of the Sherman era. I'm curious too. I mean, I I know we don't know much about his ownership group. I mean, he's not as far as I know. He's not a billionaire. Like he's not one of the wealthiest people in America. He's a very, very, very rich man. Like he's a man of means, and I'm sure he's a millionaire several times over. But he's not necessarily like you know, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos, who's walking in with just like billions of dollars. And a lot of times in these kind of deals, when new ownerships take over, they take on some debt. I mean, because they're they've borrowed to come up with the capital to to to, to buy this team. Um, you know, the Padres ownership team, I think just talked, I mean, they took over, I think four or five years ago and they just talked about this past off season, how they just paid off their debt, which is why they were able to be a little more aggressive in free agency this year and get Eric Hosmer and Manny Machado. And so sometimes that can hamper a team's ability. I mean, I think we're seeing that in Miami a lot. Uh, they were very, uh, I think they took on a lot of debt to take, to buy that team. And so that could end up impacting the deal. We could see this team maybe operate with uh, a lower payroll, which they were going to do anyway, I think, because they're rebuilding. But that's kind of fortunate for the ownership group because they don't have to like plunge a lot of money into player personnel for the first couple of years. So I think I'm with you. I'm, I, you know, hundred million dollars is probably their break-even point. I would expect to see that more when they are kind of back at the competitive level. Uh, but you know, he's coming from the Indians, who aren't exactly a team that spends a lot of money on free agents. They're a team that's more than willing to let guys leave via free agency or trade guys before they hit free agency. Uh, you know, I don't think they, they really like to latch guys onto long-term deals into their 30s. So that's kind of how things, I think that's probably how things will operate here. And, and that's probably a good thing. I think a lot of times that, that formula where you're keeping guys into your 30s really hasn't worked for a lot of small market teams. And we've certainly seen that with Alex Gordon. So uh, we'll have to see. I mean, John Sherman, I mean, could who knows? Maybe he's like a, a George Steinbrenner. He's going to spend like a sailor. Um, but, you know, it is interesting that, you know, he did come out, have to come up with a $1 billion asking price, Sean. Uh, and that's David Glass gets that one billion dollars, 
after an initial investment of $96 million. What do you kind of make of the Royals being worth a billion dollars after 20 years? Uh, you know, and after, you know, the stadium renovations uh, that Jackson County taxpayers all pay for. Baseball doesn't seem to be quite dead yet. Yeah, you know, and I was thinking about it, too, when you asked about why Dan, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> why David Glass is going to sell and I go to Dan. But, like, if you think of it from kind of a prototypical investment standpoint, I mean, he made, bought it for 96, sold it for, let's call it a billion even. I mean, whatever that is, that's a 900% or more return. Um, and it's like, yeah, that's that's pretty good. I mean, any investment that you make, you're, you would love to, you know, get a 10-bagger on it and uh cash out so i think that might be part of it too it's not it's not necessarily just like oh let's sell i don't want to pass it down it could just be like okay you know what i mean these are business guys they you know they they scored 10x return on it it might just be like okay let's sell that's great let's go invest somewhere else and figure out where to go and not that it was a pure investment to them obviously but from just a pure uh price return standpoint as we would call it they did well then they've got all those dividends they paid themselves throughout the year so a billion dollars is really nice to have you know (laughs) yeah 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 and i mean so they've done well and like in their total return i mean all the money they paid themselves throughout the years too has been great i'm sure so yeah i mean um it's not bad i would i would recommend anybody if they can own a sports franchise i think uh, i think they should except for the t-bones don't don't do not own the t-bones uh yeah the t-bones um I guess speaking of like stadium issues, the Royals, you know, the, the the sale of the Royals to Sherman has kind of reignited talk of the Royals moving downtown. I'm going to talk a little bit about that with Kevin Collison, who's followed a lot of downtown news before. But I did kind of want to get your guys' reactions to the possibility. Uh, you know, the Royals do have a lease through 2030. Um, so they, they're going to stay at Kauffman Stadium for a while, but they're going to probably have these kind of talks about, okay, what do we do beyond that in the next couple of years? Craig, what's kind of your thought about uh, the Royals moving, possibly moving downtown. Was, is that something that could work here in Kansas City? Uh, what do you want to see out of the Royals in the next decade? Yeah, I, I do think that it could work downtown. I, I saw Kevin's article about you know the East Village is, is a place where where they're targeting the the you know they, they cited you know a it's you know on the east side of the loop, kind of easy to get off the the highways and to get into downtown and get out. Uh, the thing that, that really kind of struck me when I, when I looked at the, the image that, that was uh, along with Kevin's article, um, if you position a ballpark on the east side of downtown, it's going to look out at a highway, which is what it's looking out at right now. I mean, if you align the park correctly. So, you know, I mean, to me, part of the allure of being downtown is having that skyline and 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 all that you know beyond the outfield fence you know uh, I, I just thought that that was that was kind of interesting that that's where they were kind of focusing on uh you know again you put a winning product on the field it doesn't matter where that stadium is i know that you know a lot of people have an attachment to kaufman uh i'm, I'm not a, a, a romanticist on the stadium by any stretch to the imagination i mean i, I think that they kind of destroyed any kind of old old feel in the stadium when they put in the you know whatever the outfield extravaganza is out there right now uh so you know if, if they wanted to that area over to the to the chiefs and, and let them have a, a little more space out there with the royals downtown i you know i mean i, I think that it, that it could work in kansas city it's just it's it's about finding that that right site um you know, I, I think it's it's important to have that access to the streetcar. We can kind of mock the 
the you know minimalist streetcar line, you know, all, all we want to. But I think in, in a situation like that, it's, it's kind of important to have it so you can park a little bit further away and, and you know, uh, hop on that streetcar, get easy access to some parking down there. Uh, you know, but but yeah, I, I mean, I, I I think it would would work, and and I I think uh, that it makes sense for the Royals to to start exploring that, and uh, you know, that's something that. Uh, you know, I think the timing is going to work out just right again. It gives Sherman a little bit of time to kind of, you know, get used to the day-to-day operations of, of owning that baseball team on his own, not being the minority partner anymore, uh, you know, getting a feel for, you know, where the organization is and, and their rebuilding process and, and everything and, and what he wants to do with the structure of the front office. And then he can kind of, you know, turn his attention to that downtown issue you know, with the, with, you know, seven, eight years left on the lease and, and, you know, kind of jumpstart that. So the Royals are, are ready and there, there's just kind of no uncertainty as they get closer to the, to the uh, deadline of the current lease. Uh, the Kansas City Stars had reported that Sherman is, you know, he's been a downtown booster for a while and he's at least open to the idea of moving them. So it's not like he's, you know, he hasn't really said anything on the, uh, publicly yet. Uh, but but Sam Ellinger also wrote that the Royals are uh, supposedly exhilarated at the idea of potentially moving down there. Sean, what do you think? Would you rather see the Royals downtown uh, in Kansas City, or do you do you like seeing them out at the Truman Sports Complex? Yeah, yeah, I'd rather see them downtown. I mean, I've lived in Kansas City, is born here, all, lived here all my life for now my thirtieth year of existence here, and uh, I don't know, like I don't love traveling out all the way out there to Truman Sports Complex. Like, it doesn't matter where you live unless you live in Independence. It just seems like it's far away. Even, like, from my house, it's probably 15 minutes. Um, But it still just seems like it's such a trek because there's no easy way to get there, necessarily. There's either take the highway or take the back way. The back ways are kind of loopy. The highway gets packed because it's also a major highway that during rush hour also is packed. And, you know, you've got to leave at 530 or 6 to get there by 7. Uh, so you're always going to hit traffic. So I would like a downtown stadium. Now, that, those problems won't go away with a downtown stadium necessarily, but um, I do like the idea. And I think one of the things that I've seen a lot is that people worried about tailgating. But, I mean, I don't is, I don't go to a lot of Wednesday Royal games, but do people tailgate on Wednesdays? I mean, before a 7 o'clock game, I, I think that's usually just like getting off work and going to show up. So un, unlike the Chiefs, who uh, obviously – all Sunday, people get people are there two hours before gates open, um, and so I think that tailgating isn't really gonna. I, I just like the idea a lot, and I think I think it's it makes it makes more sense for the Royals to have a downtown stadium necessarily than the Chiefs, who the Chiefs can have those gigantic parking lots and kind of because it's really much more of a weekly destination as opposed to baseball as a daily destination. Yeah, you know, and and if the Royals are, are smart about that, they, they can be proactive. There's going to be plenty of like surface lots around the, the stadium if they built something downtown so they could you know maybe charge a premium you know uh, own a couple of those lots themselves make it a tailgate only lot hey you yeah. want to you you, you, you want to set up a grill this is the lot for you come in here and then you know then the rest of the, the crowd that doesn't want to do that can go someplace else there yeah. are quite a few sean the, you know on a wednesday at kaufman I, I mean i was out there last night I know that it was it was actually Pride Night out at the stadium, oh. um, and there was uh, there was a big tent set out, and I think it was Lot N when you came in through Gate Five that uh, you know where the where the the people that were celebrating Pride Night had gathered. 
Uh, you know, I've been out there other nights when they've had corporate events set up, tents uh, set up in like lot J, lot H. Um, so, you know, I mean, they do use that uh, quite a bit, I, I think, for, you know, uh, tailgating or, you know, not necessarily like, hey, you're going to go out with four of your buddies and, and set up a grill. There's, there is plenty of that out there. But there are also some big, you know, bigger kind of events, even, even on, on a weeknight. So, you know, they, they would get use out of it. I, I think that, you know, people adapt, you know. I, I mean, if, if the, the, the parking lot, the, the acreage that they have out of Kaufman, you know, moved downtown somewhere and, and split up, you know, people would, would still find a way to, to set the grills up and, and, you know, there would still be like a sense of community that, that, that you get from that tailgate. I'm not, I, I, I think that that's just kind of a, you know, th there's a lot of people that, that, that have attachments to Kaufman. I understand it. I get it. Um, but, you know, I, I think that you put something downtown and, and you, you would quickly, uh, you know, have those attachments to, to the new place just as well. Yeah, I was going to say, if they build a state-of-the-art stadium downtown, I really think people would get over Kaufman fairly quickly. Um, uh, I, I'm sure, like, when whatever it is called now, whatever the new Braves field is, you know, people have been had gone to Turner Field for, for years and years and decades, but, like, the new park and everything I've heard is just absolutely awesome. And um, I think as well, the one thing holding it back, though, is that it, like with the Yankees or even uh, the Pirates Stadium, not a lot of people live downtown necessarily in Kansas City. Obviously, you know a lot do, but Kansas City is very separated. Um, the whole it's a met, you know, obviously, and you guys know this is the metro area as opposed to a single consolidated kind of central hub. So I think that's one thing. I don't know if that's good or bad for a downtown stadium, but I do think it's it's a little different in the sense that. Not everybody's as centrally located, perhaps, as other cities that have downtown stadiums. Yeah, I think there are a fair amount of people downtown. But I think you're right that, that the fan base is probably more spread out than, say, like, um, you know, like Chicago. You don't have, you know, you don't have like a, a mass of people just right, right around the stadium like you do, like at the South Side or, or Wrigley Field. Uh, but, uh, but, it'd be, you know, like like the point you made, Sean, earlier was like it's centrally located to everyone. I mean, like uh, Kauffman Stadium right now is really convenient to really just – people right around the stadium which there aren't many people around the stadium and yeah. I, I was a kid i grew up in this east jackson county uh and it still took us a long time to get to the game uh, a good 10 you know 15 20 minutes uh and whereas downtown you know it may take everyone 15 20 minutes but at least it's kind of close to everyone now you're not taking a big trek from like the northland all the way down to uh the the, the sports complex so i think you're right it, it, people will adapt i mean people i think around here are a little bit resistant to change I mean, look at some of the people that are kind of resistant to a new airport. Like, they're like, oh, it's so convenient to have the old airport. And it's like, well, yeah, but you'll get used to the new one. And the new one will have a lot, you know, more amenities and it'll be a lot more convenient in other ways. And the same thing with the stadium. I think people, look, people know how to get to the to Kauffman Stadium. They know where to park. Uh, they may not be as familiar with downtown. Or maybe they went downtown, they didn't know where to park, and they got scared, and they got you know frustrated or whatever. You know, it's going to take some time for them to to learn how to get to a, a Royals game downtown, where to park. Uh, but but look, I've I've parked at events downtown. It's really easy. I mean, like I've parked on. You know, I've gone to KU games at Sprint Center where there's a pretty much a capacity crowd. I've parked on Grand for free, walked a couple blocks, gotten in and out pretty easily. Now a Royals game, a lot of Royals games won't have more more people than that. But the few Royals games that do. I mean, yeah. it, it may be a little bit hard to get out, but you know what? It's not that easy to get out of 
Truman Sports Complex when there's 30,000 people there. I mean, I after one of the World Series games, I sat there for like an hour and a half trying to get out. I mean, it's people are kind of yeah. overstate the parking and traffic issue downtown and understate the, the parking and traffic issue at Kauffman Stadium. And, and like, it took you a while to get around. I mean, I'm sorry. For the KU game, you were able to you, – you found it fairly easy. And this is when that area is not set up to necessarily capacitate that as right. opposed to when – even you know if they do move a scene downtown, they'll have it. They'll set it up to be much more friendlier. So they'll, they'll, they'll almost now, certainly have a parking garage like attached right, to the stadium. Right. That's what I'm saying. Even now, it's easy to navigate with all those people. Imagine how much how easy it'll even be when they have it facilitated towards that many people as opposed to now. So. Yeah. Well, we'll see what ends up. I mean, we got. I'm sure we got several years and, and a lot of debates before this anything really comes to fruition. But uh, it is kind of something to keep an eye on for the future. Hey, uh, here's a. Prop. Wait, wait. I got a prop bet. I just thought of. Um, I don't know how to say it, but uh, we'll just say true or false. Kaufman Stadium had Sherman brings in naming rights for the stadium. Oh, you know, it's something they mentioned or they tried to do. I think about a decade ago. I forget. It was one of the local banks. They had negotiations with them, but they couldn't come up with a number. If they were open to it back then, you know, maybe they'd be up. And yeah, obviously, wouldn't be. They wouldn't chain take Kaufman off the stadium name. It would be, you know, Bank of America Park at Kauffman Stadium. But yeah, I, yeah, I could see yeah. that happen. I, that, yeah, I, I, I would think that wouldn't be the first thing Sherman does. I think he'd want to build up some goodwill. That would be probably oh, yeah. generous. Imagine some, if that uh, was. Yeah. Imagine changing the team name. Sherman is going to have a lot more latitude. Than, than glass then then not that glass would necessarily care about it but i mean even you know think hey uh go to this parallel universe where glass isn't selling the team comes out and says oh yeah it's going to be bank of america field at kaufman stadium people are gonna are gonna are, will flip you know oh glass just wants another couple million dollars to line his pockets he's not going to put it in payroll you know he's he's besmirching the the good name of ewing kaufman blah 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 well, here you've got this guy, John Sherman, who's, you know, a, a member of the Kaufman Foundation on the board, you know, so uh, he, he's got that community tie to Ewing Kaufman, uh, a Kansas City guy. He's going to be able to do something like that. And, and, and now people will go, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, <laughs> all right, cool. You know, uh, and, and I mean, I'm, I'm for it anyway. I, you know, hey, the, the stadium is full of advertisements. You can't. <laughs> I mean, you cannot watch a game and not get bombarded by thousands of branding messages out in the outfield. What in the world is wrong with throwing something up on the outside of the stadium next to Kaufman's name? You know, I mean, it's it's just it's just reality in, in the the economics of of the of the market. It, it just makes all sorts of sense. And we'd all still call it Kaufman Stadium anyway. I mean, no one's going to call. No, I still yeah. I just I still call. It, Comiskey Park, even though it hasn't been Comiskey, I don't think it's ever been Comiskey Park. It's guaranteed right field. I, you know, yeah. no one calls it that. So Jacob's um, Field, it'll always yeah, be Jacob's. Yeah, no. yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, well, it's yeah. always going to be the K. Well, you tried to touch upon kind of David Glass and how we're going to remember him. I did want to talk a little bit about his legacy. Uh, certainly, you know, a wide-ranging legacy of like we had the early years. We talked about you know scrimping over a million dollars for Carlos, Carlos Beltran, but then you also have the championship. Craig, what what's kind of what do you think is going to be the legacy of David Glass when we're looking back on his you know ownership 10, 20 years from now? Well, I mean, you know, you, you 
as as we move further away from that, it, it'll be you know. I, I mean, I, I think that that people will and probably should focus more on the good times than than the bad. Um, you know, it, it's it's really complicated, and, and I think it's impossible to actually cover. You know, here I've, I've been kind of you know kicking some ideas around that I'd like to put you know down on the the electronic paper and and, and push out onto the site. But um, you know, I, I mean, I, I think you know. At the, in the end, it, it was a positive, and, and I think also, you know, and, and I, this may be veering a little bit too far, so, you know, reel me back, back in, Max, I apologize in advance, but Ewing Kaufman, he knew, you know, that, that, that he was coming to the end, he knew that, that he didn't have anybody, you know, that, that would step up in the community that, that would take the Royals, he loved Kansas City, he wanted to keep the team in Kansas City. He set up that that foundation, but before that, he also brought Avron Fogelman in as a partner with the idea that you know when the time came, Fogelman would would take the majority ownership of the team. That was a bad decision, you know, putting the team in, in, in that trust and in, in the Kansas City you know commission, whatever they called it at the time. That wasn't a really great decision either. Um, Kaufman, for for all of his, you know what. All the good that he did for baseball in Kansas City, you know, made a couple of questionable decisions there towards the end that, that, that really hurt the team. Now, Glass, on the other hand, you know, uh, Sherman just maybe dropped into his lap. But, you know, again, going back to what we talked about earlier, the, the, the avoidance of having Dan Glass as the principal owner of the team, um, you know, the, the, the fact that that. You know, Glass can can get his money and get out and get it to a guy you know with Kansas City ties. That that means a lot to this community, and and I think that that's also part of the legacy is 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 how you know David Glass passes this team on to the next owner. It, it's you know and probably going to be in some some decent shape based off that TV deal. Uh, so you know, I, I mean, I, I think yeah, it's a mixed legacy, but I I would lean overall towards a positive. Um, you know, uh, just you know, kind of based on on how Glass is exiting and how and what we've seen here in Kansas City the last you know five years uh, of his tenure. Um, so you know, I, I mean, that's kind of where I'm leaning right now. And I'll give a little bit of defense to David Glass for his early days. I mean, like he was brought in, like you said, to kind of be the caretaker of the franchise, and he had to cut costs. I mean, there's just no way around it. They were being owned by a limited exactly. partnership that was basically a nonprofit. They couldn't absorb the losses that they had taken on under Ewan Kaufman in his later years because he wanted to win a championship with some big free agents. And so they had to, they had to trade away, you know, Brian McRae and David Cohn immediately uh, just because of the economics of baseball and also because of the situation they found themselves in. And they had to make the, the franchise attractive for a buyer as well. Um, and, and so, you know, and even when he did take over the, the club and, he, and remember he was, uh, one of the only ones that didn't kind of lowball with an offer. I mean, Lamar Hunt and George Brett's group uh, kind of came in and, and, and offered really lowball offers on the club. Uh, Miles Prentice came with a higher offer, but um, there were some questions about you know how, how how much cash his ownership group had. A little bit of politics yeah, too. Prentice had Miles Prentice had like a hundred people in his group, yeah. and they still didn't have enough. Right. I mean that that, that was insane. That yeah. could have been a really unstable situation as well. So. Oh. So, you know, David Glass stepped in and, and, and look, they, they had to operate kind of lean and mean back then. And he was not the only owner that was pretty stingy back then. I mean, remember the Minnesota Twins, the Oakland Athletics were also, also running, you know, very low payrolls. 
the Athletics have continued to really run low payrolls, you know, for the last 20 years. The Rays since then have run, you know, very low payrolls. The Pirates as well. So he's certainly not, you know, the only one kind of being, you know, cheap. And, you know, to his credit, he did, you know, increase payroll when the team did get competitive. I guess my big black mark against him, though, is the early meddling. Like you said, like the Carlos Beltran being Pennywise and pound foolish, you know, you know, not giving him extra million dollars to keep Carlos Beltran. There are room, you know, stories about him blocking trades. I think for Joe Randa, uh, for requiring that they get Nafi Perez or major league player back in return for Jermaine Dye, and they get Nafi Perez instead of some great prospects. Um, so there are a lot of really missteps. Not really investing in scouting, and not investing in the international uh, free agent market in the early days. A lot of you know, early missteps and, and I guess probably a learning curve that he had to go through as well. So there is, I think, always going to be that that black mark. But, you know, he eventually came around, I think, uh, certainly not, a, a, I think, an exemplary owner. But I think, you know, one that brings a, a championship, I think, is going to be remembered fairly fondly and deservedly so. But, Sean, what do you what, what's kind of your legacy? Well, how are you going to remember David Glass when he, uh, uh, you know, a decade from now? Yeah, I mean, I think it's not dissimilar to Dayton Moore's legacy in the sense that it was bad start, um, then had a peak, and then kind of went a little downhill from there. So um, I'm eventually, and I'm sure we're all going to have a take on it, but I'll eventually put something up on it as well. But yeah, I think complicated is the only way to think about it. It's it's like you've got all, you've got 14 and 15. Um, and I don't know necessarily if 14 and 15 are derived through something Glass himself did necessarily because actually I feel like a lot of the spending came in 16 and 17 um, other than adding Cueto and adding Zobris, but I don't recall them being so – they're both rentals, so it wasn't as if they were taking on a large salary necessarily. Well, I think uh, also they they did kind of hamstring more a little bit in those deals by requiring them, them not to add like a certain yeah. amount of payroll. So Right, right. <laughs> Um, and so, I mean, so it's, it's that of, it's like, there's so, there's some goodwill and there's some bad will. And so you've got to figure out the right mix of the two. And I just don't think, I think the complicated is the only word you can come up with. And I, I don't think there's a way to spin it necessarily. He was good or he was bad. I think, I think it's just kind of a gray area. Um, and of course, those of us who, were around okay actually let me say this uh for many of whom who were around i was not one of them back in 1999 and 2000 um who lived through the really really bad years um you know they could choose to not necessarily forget about that but they could be like oh you know we had to suffer that to get to just the good and there's some folks who've only been around for you know the quote-unquote good um, I'm kind of a mix of both. I basically started following baseball in 2008. Um, so I've got a little bit of the bad, a little bit of the good. Um, so I think it just depends on when you started following them and, you know, which side of the coin you, you want to follow because you've got, get, you've got good and you've got bad. And depending on how long you've been following, you could have more good or more bad. So it just, it's really complicated. It's not, a, it's not like maybe when Coppin was there and Coppin had a lot of good and you kind of felt like you had an altruistic owner. I think Glass was anything but altruistic. Um, but still, you know, the Royals won the World Series under his tenure. So, uh, you know, there's just, it's just so much complexity to it, I think. Yeah, the Allard Baird years are still seared into my memory like a bad nightmare. So I don't think I'm ever going to forget those yeah. years and some of the, the trials that we had to go through. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see what, what, what his uh, legacy is. I think, you know, the image of him holding that championship trophy 
that's just probably going to endure. Because, you know, even though there was some bad image of him early on, he was kind of a, a vacant landlord. I mean, he wasn't really at the stadium. He wasn't really a fixture at the stadium. It was more behind-the-scenes uh, stuff. And so the visual we have of him is, is, is him holding that championship trophy and saying losing is for losers, and, and those are good times. And I think that's probably how he'll be remembered. Uh, I, I, Max, when, when I saw that, I thought I was tripping acid. Which, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I did, that, that was one of the most surreal things. David Glass holding that trophy and saying that 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 that, that blew my mind. Well, uh, <laughs> one of the funniest things every year is seeing the owner doff a championship T-shirt over his like dress shirt and then like <laughs> a, a championship t- a hat and then players you know pouring champagne on. I love that's it's just like one of the most unintentionally hilarious moments of the year for me. It's just funny to see. Uh, well, I have you guys, you know, we'll kind of wrap up the ownership talk. I just did want to talk about some odds and ends from this week. Uh, Sean, the Royals picked up Ryan McBroom from the Yankees, a first baseman, acquired him from cash for cash considerations. Uh, I know you may be saying that the July trade deadline is over, but you're still allowed to trade minor leaguers, not on the 40-man roster. Uh, the Royal, uh, he hit uh, 315 with 26 home runs for AAA's Granton this year. Uh, he's 27 years old. The Royals did add him to the major league roster this week. What do you kind of make of the Ryan McGroom trade? Is he part of the future or just kind of a placeholder? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those where I, got, I was thinking about it like, okay, on the one hand, I, he came from the Yankees. The Yankees are really known for these guys, Luke Voigt, Mike Ford, um, not really necessarily Greg Bird, but they've got these guys that they can just kind of find. They go, uh, Gio Urshela, or I, actually, I guess he came from the – anyway, they, they've done a really good job of finding these guys that are just randos that go, oh, hey, this guy's a 120 WRC-plus hitter um, in the major leagues. My only concern is that they didn't want him, and so maybe this isn't one of those guys. Um, and it wasn't like with Nick Solak and the Rays where the Rays are like – we have too many of these, like probably good hitting middle infielders. We have nine of them, so we and we were just going to not protect them anyway. So let's get a useful piece back in Fairbanks. Um, so I'm kind of half like, oh, okay, this is good, and we've seen these guys do well. Like I said, Luke Voigt, Mike Ford, but then again, the Yankees didn't want him. So I think that says something if the team that's really good about this kind of stuff doesn't want him. Um, and so it's interesting, at least. I, I mean. I, I still think I'd rather go O'Hearn, um, but it doesn't seem to be that he's necessarily taking play time away from O'Hearn. Um, but I don't know. I think it's interesting. I don't. I don't think he's a piece of the future. Uh, it's tough to be a first base kind of only guy. I think he's played a little outfield, but it's tough to kind of be his profile unless you can really, really hit. And I, I don't know. It's it's tough to expect guys to really, really hit necessarily. So. Well, he, you know, I think the reason the the Yankees didn't want him, uh, one reason is probably his age, but also, you know, he's, and he's blocked by Luke Voigt. But, uh, you know, the, he had to be protected from the rule, you know, from the Rule Five draft, and rather than lose him for nothing, they decided to give him to the Royals for cash consideration. And I think one of the advantages the Royals have uh, is they have a lot of forty-man roster spots. They could probably, you know, get rid of a lot of guys this offseason and open up some spots. And there are some teams up against kind of a, you know, they've got a lot of guys. They need to either add to the 40-man roster or perhaps trade. Uh, and so I think the Royals should be taking advantage of that. Uh, there's a lot of really deep organizations and some of that excess talent. Uh, you know, the Royals should probably look to pick up some of that. So I, I agree with you. I think McBroom's kind of interesting in that he's got good pop. Of course, everyone had good pop in AAA this year. But, um, you know, right-handed bat who has increased his walk rate a little bit. Um, yeah, give him a chance. We'll see, you know, see what you can get out of him. Um, right-handed bat but left-handed fielder, right? Which we is saw a very, that. It's a rarity. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so, love it. Yeah, I love that. 
September call-ups, Craig. Uh, we saw you know we saw some players come back: Danny Duffy, Alberto Montesi, Cam Gallagher, Jesse Hahn, who I, I'm sure a lot of people listening had forgotten about, but he made his Royals debut this week, uh, a year and a half after being acquired from the Athletics. Uh, the Royals also brought back Heath Fillmire, and they also brought up Gabe Spire and Eric Mejia. Uh, Spire is a left-hander, uh, left-handed pitcher they got from the Diamondbacks last year for John Jay, and Mejia is a infielder they got in, uh, from the Dodgers a couple years back in the Scott Alexander Joaquin Soria deal. Uh, th- are you surprised at all by this, uh, the call-ups that were called up and the guys that weren't called up, or is this kind of what you were expecting? I mean, it, the the guys that they they called up, you know, make sense uh, to me. Uh, I'm, I'm really kind of interested in, in Gabe Spire. Um, you know, just based on you know what we saw from his one appearance on uh, Thursday afternoon out of the stadium. Uh, you know, that th- 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 was a nice major league debut. Also, you know, really intrigued by him, as you mentioned, coming over in the John Jay deal. You know, um, it, it would be nice to be able to, to get something out of that deal, especially since they lost, uh, you know, Luciano to the Jays in the Rule 5 draft last winter. Um, you know, and of course, the, the omission that, that everyone's talking about is, is Love Lady. Um, you know, I, I just kind of think that, you know, the Royals, you know, saw, you know, what, what he could do at the major league level. Um, you know, he... He pitched. Uh, I don't know what. Um, how, how much did he, did he pitch this year for them? I, I mean, he, he had a couple of cups of coffee. I know. So, you know, um, you know, twenty innings, not super impressive. It's an opportunity now. You know, uh, just not bringing him up at this point, where, where they have more opportunities to go around for like a, a Han, a Spire. Um, you know these types of guys that, that that they haven't had that that opportunity to look at. Uh, Han, of course, is interesting as well, coming back from that injury. I mean, I, I like stories like that. I'm kind of a sucker for that. The, the dude hasn't pitched for for two years and and is back in the in the big leagues. Um, you know, so you, you know guys like that. Uh, you know, you really kind of pull for uh, and 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 hope that that he can come back and, and make an impact, not just because you're a fan of the Royals, but just because, you know, you're, you're a fan of uh, guys that work their butts off, you know, after injury to, to try and get back to the, to the highest level that, that they can. So, uh, you know, yeah, overall, all, all kind of makes sense to me. Well, yeah, I think that the lovely, uh, the fact that he wasn't called up was a little surprising. The Royals said that he, I guess, needed more seasoning, uh, which is kind of a vague way to, you know, I guess say that he didn't really pitch well when he was up here. But, Sean, I think you kind of pointed out he was rather unlucky in some of his last couple outings. Uh, he was giving up runs, though. So what, what did you kind of make of Richard Lovelady this season? Um, Brandon, uh, for, very brief Worlds Review writer, but BHM Depp Mo on uh, Twitter, he pointed out that a lot of Lovelady's hits were just kind of – Bloopers is, I can't think of the word he described in this, but they were basically just opposite field hits, but they were kind of like the booty knocks, as Rex Hudler would call them, just kind of two strike, just floaters to opposite field and um, to right-handed batters. And so, I don't know. Yeah, I thought he was pretty unlucky. I've tweeted out a million stats about him, but a lot of them. It's tough to have a 7 ERA and be unlucky necessarily. There's definitely something behind that. Um, But there was a lot that has to go with, I mean, Poor usage of his consistency in time. Um, you know, he was promoted twice. Now he's been demoted twice. Uh, had 
multiple times went five plus days with off. I think one time he went seven straight days without appearing. And then um, when he did appear, he would appear just kind of randomly. Um, they wanted to pigeonhole him a bit into being left-handed only, um, being a loogie, but they have Tim Hill. So it just seems like they didn't know what to do with them. Uh, and I don't know. Uh, we, we've heard some other stuff as well that we don't want to really get into, but there's just been a lot going on around Love Lady that um, – it was it feels like he was treated maybe not i i'll actually say it i think he was treated unfairly i don't think that like i said it's tough to have a seven era and just be like oh it's just bad luck uh but there was a lot going on with him that i think 20 innings or however many he ended up getting this year in the major leagues isn't enough at all to make any conclusions on him particularly when he was up and down and he had farewell he had fared well uh, in the minors for the two or three years he's been there and so i don't know i i think that I don't think they're going to move on from him, but I think if they did move on from him, he could be very successful somewhere else. But I hope he gets that chance here. Yeah, there was kind of talk about him having some uh, other teams interested in him in trades at the July 31st deadline. So, well, let's see. Maybe he gets the seasoning that he needs and comes back next year as a dominant reliever, and uh, it all works out in the end. But, uh, guys, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Uh, We're going to take a break. When we come back, I'll talk to Kevin Collison about downtown baseball. Joining me now is Kevin Collison. Kevin was a writer for the Kansas City Star for 14 years, covering downtown development news, and he's the founder and writer of City Scene KC, a valuable resource for keeping up with Kansas City downtown news, which you can read at cityscenekc.com. Kevin, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks, Max. Glad to be with you. Well, the Royals have a new owner in, in John Sherman. Of course, it still has yet to be approved by Major League Baseball, but that should be a formality. But the ownership sale has renewed talk that they could eventually move downtown when their lease at the Truman Sports Complex expires in 2031. Uh, Sam Ellinger at the Kansas City Star reported that the Royals are, quote, exhilarated at the possibility of moving downtown. And John Sherman is said to be a big downtown booster who is likely to at least consider the option. Uh, now, when I, this topic comes up, I think for a lot of our fans, um, I think some people are excited about downtown baseball, but some people ask, why should the Royals move downtown? Kauffman Stadium's great. I love the location. So can you can you kind of make the case for, for those that are for downtown baseball? What's kind of the case for, for moving the Royals downtown? Well, the biggest argument is that in cities where downtown ballparks have been built over the past 20 years, and that's by far the majority of uh, Major League franchises, they've not only benefited the teams in terms of greater weekday attendance and greater corporate sponsorship, but they've done a tremendous amount of spin-off redevelopment. Um, anybody that's been to Denver, for example, a city I'm familiar with, after Coors Field opened up in the Lodo area of Denver, there was just an explosion of new bars and restaurants and even apartments because uh, people like to live near ballparks uh, has taken over that whole area of Denver. And when you go to a game day at Coors Field, uh, you could easily spend a couple of hours uh, hanging out with your fellow baseball fans at bars and restaurants and even just street parties uh, getting ready for the game. And it creates that great energy. So it not only, you know, boosts people's enthusiasm about the team, but also uh, does so much to encourage more private investment and, uh, you know, in helping the overall revitalization of uh, the downtowns where ballparks have been going. And we hear a lot about the economic development, and it sounds like there's been some debate about, you know, how much development these stadiums, uh, uh, you know, create in a city. Can you talk a little bit about, 
you know, what's the, what's the, I guess, true measure of the economic development that these stadiums produce? Is it more that it concentrates it in certain areas? Uh, well, you know, I, I mean, I don't know of any objective studies that show these things. I do know that in, uh, you know, when there was a uh, study to build a downtown ballpark in Kansas City back in 05, uh, the uh, folks who put that report together, you know, definitely found there was a strong, strong correlation between downtown ballparks and spinoff uh, uh, investment. Um, you know, it's certainly the case that there would be a lot of activity within a couple of blocks, few blocks of the ballpark, but also just, you know, out-of-town visitors staying in hotels that would help uh, boost, uh, you know, occupancy rates in downtown hotels, and that could spread anywhere from, you know, the Crown Center area to uh, throughout the Central Business District. And if we get the streetcar built out to uh, UMKC, people could easily uh, go to a hotel uh, in the in the plaza and hop on the streetcar and go to a ball game downtown. So, you know, as far as specific locations, I believe, again, you know, you see a lot of activity within a block or two of the ballpark. And then you see a ripple effect of people staying in hotels and, you know, maybe going to a restaurant a little bit away and uh, hopping on a streetcar and going to the game or, as the case in some other cities, a light rail and going to the game. Yeah, I think if you've seen downtown baseball in a lot of other cities, you'll notice that it is there is a, like, usually a district that pops up around it, either organically or, or by development, or by planned development. So, uh, you know, certainly that would be much different than, you know, the Truman Sports Complex, where we basically have an island of just sports and, and not much around there. Now, right. I, and that's, you know, and, and that that's another huge point is the fact that in the, oh gosh, what has it been, 40 years since, 45 years since um, Kaufman and, and uh, Arrowhead were built out there, I think that was the early 70s, you really, uh, except for uh, a couple of uh, smaller hotels and uh, a quick trip, <laughs> you haven't seen any real um, spinoff development. And at the same time, you've got huge taxpayer investments in those properties, uh, which are great. You know, people love to go to the games. I do, like anybody else that lives in the area. But they're not getting a lot of leverage from the money that's been invested in those facilities in terms of attracting even more investment from uh, from private sources. When we talk about building development around these stadiums uh, when they're downtown, I think one of the first things people always talk about when we talk about downtown baseball is, is traffic and parking. And, of course, sure. a lot of people mm-hmm. love the ease of just kind of parking at the Truman Sports Complex. They know how to get there. For a lot of people in eastern Jackson County, it's really easy to get to the stadiums. How do you kind of address the parking and, and, and traffic issues that would come with the downtown baseball stadium? Well, I guess, you know, on the traffic front, all roads lead to downtown. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, I mean, I know, uh, you know, the Truman Complex is great as far as just freeway access off of 435. Uh, but, you know, again, anybody that either comes downtown to work or to be entertained knows quite easily how to get here. So it's not as if anybody would have to hunt and peck to find their way parking you know would be a it certainly would be an issue there are a lot of garages downtown uh and uh many of them especially on weekends and evenings would be available for fans coming to the game uh and uh you know the traffic situation per se is just i think the most of the locations are but the primary location i've been hearing about uh is the east village area and that's a area on the east side of the loop uh east of of city hall it's a big tract of property that has been assembled for uh a potential redevelopment um and it's right off of 71 highway 
Uh, and so it's got direct access from people coming in and, and coming on the loop around downtown. And it's also probably not too far from where some other parking might be available down the road. But again, there are certainly a large number of garages downtown, and many of them have a lot of spaces available uh, after business hours and on weekends. Yeah, I feel like someone, I've, I've probably seen this graphic around somewhere, but I think someone put an overlay of like the Truman Sports Complex parking lot over downtown and show that there's like a lot more parking available downtown. Oh, it, you, oh Max, you're totally, you know, it's, it's interesting the psychology of this. Yeah. Uh, people won't think anything about walking the equivalent of a quarter mile or a half mile, uh, you know, and that's about as far away as you can get sometimes <laughs> from the outer reaches of those parking lots, as long as they can see that ballpark off in the distance. Uh, while if they have to walk maybe four or five blocks downtown, they think, again, in, that it's a much lar- longer distance than actually what they're quite accustomed to walking across the lots at Kaufman. Yeah, and, it, and, and I think also for anyone that's been to a downtown uh, stadium in another city, I mean, a lot of these cities have a much more dense, a much more populated uh, downtown than Kansas City. And, you know, they've made it work. And I've been to some of these stadiums, and a lot of them have pretty convenient parking pretty close to the stadium. A lot of them yeah, have parking do. garages mm-hmm. right attached to the stadium, which I imagine uh, downtown right. baseball here would have, uh, you know, stadium here. Well, it could, yeah. You know, I, I'm familiar with Target Field, too, up in Minneapolis, mm-hmm. and they've got several good-sized garages right, you know, within very close proximity to the ballpark there plus they have a light rail station right outside the entrance to the ballpark and we've got streetcar now which that's a significant change from what was the case downtown back in 05 when they made the first big push to try to get a ballpark and that as anybody who uses it it's a great way to get around greater downtown you know currently from union station all the way down to river market so you could easily park anywhere along that street where a streetcar line and just hop on that on the streetcar and, and uh, have fairly good access uh you know even though like east village for example is about four blocks away from the streetcar line but you know compared again to what people are used to walking at uh, kaufman it's not that big a deal well let's talk about some of those sites the kansas city star yeah. uh, identified a couple of potential sites that have been mm-hmm. at least discussed one of them as you mentioned is the east village kind of uh the undeveloped space east of city hall the other one uh is just east of 71 uh just kind of on the other side of the crossroads uh which could help connect uh the crossroads to perhaps the 18th and vine district right what are some of the benefits to to those uh those sites and what are some, maybe some of the obstacles that could make those sites a little more difficult well the well the east village site the biggest benefit right now is the fact that the land's pretty much already been assembled. There's still a couple of parcels left, but they're not significant. Uh, I mean, this has been identified as a redevelopment site for a long time. I mean, we're going back maybe 15 years. It's been uh, the land has been assembled, uh, and it is um, you know so that would make that issue a much much less challenging. It's got good access. Uh, again, it's a little bit further from the streetcar line than a couple of other uh, potential locations. And, you know, there also has been a lot of talk over the years about something called the North Loop site, which mm-hmm. it would be between the River Market and downtown. Uh, and that also would be right on the streetcar line. Now, I've been told that that's been more complicated because there's been some more development over the past couple of years. And so some of the land that had been available is no longer available. Would that, include, Village, uh, would that include kind of capping that North Loop? Where the hell, yeah, that also is? would call for maybe a stadium that would span over the East Loop, and then that would really help connect the uh, River Market area with mm-hmm. downtown. 
But one of the one of the issues I was just chatting with somebody the other day who's very involved in the effort to bring ballparks down to bring a ballpark downtown. Uh, the old what they call the Flash Cube building, which was this office building built in the seventies, mm-hmm. uh, is now being renovated into apartments. And that I think originally when people were looking at the North Loop, they were thinking that building might be torn down uh, to help create a site for a ballpark. So that might make it a little more difficult should somebody end up wanting to do that north loop site again the east village site right now is just ripe for uh for activity and it covers about 15 acres which uh most people think could easily accommodate uh you know the space you need for a ballpark and maybe even some room for some extra investment now you mentioned i know the star talked about this kcata site uh over around 18th and truest i gotta tell you the people i have talked to who are in the know don't really think that's uh, a viable option. They hadn't even really heard about it being discussed. Hmm. So I don't know where the star got that information, uh, but I'm not hearing that as being uh, in the mix of what's being discussed these days. On the and you know and if it is in the mix, yeah, it would help with a long sought desire to kind of connect the East Crossroads with the 18th and Vine. Um, you know, you've got. A lot of that property owned by the uh, transportation authority that's kcata so it would be you know fairly easy to assemble uh i don't know how many other parcels they'd need the other obstacle though would be it is really far from the streetcar line and it's pretty much of a haul from the power and light district and some of these other places that you really want to see you know hopefully a ballpark with you know another benefit of bringing more people downtown for entertainment uh, you know, would be to actually improve the revenue streams at the Power and Light District and take more advantage of the major city investment that has gone into that place. Uh, and you wouldn't really see that benefit as much if it's that far east on 18th Street. Um, you know, I, you know, and then so you could, and and the access I assume would be fairly good. Uh, and uh, and you do have you know potentially people going to 18th and Vine, which has always been geared to being an entertainment zone, not not anything like the Power and Light District, but you know maybe it would help boost the uh, city investment in that area. Um, but again, I haven't heard anybody in the know, both with the city and with some of the private folks involved, that have talked about that as a potential location. And there is another venture that's been proposed for that area called the Keystone Innovation District. Um, they've got the people behind that whole thing, and it's kind of a you know a type of a business incubator etc for entrepreneurs are in discussions and they've got a development agreement right now with the kcata for the for the block there at 18th and truce uh they haven't made a lot of progress yet towards actually getting money raised for this so that that land may end up becoming available but um right now again i have not heard of that as being uh, you know a real strong contender for this for this potential ballpark yeah i have to admit I, that that site uh, seemed to kind of appeal to me just as a way to kind of inject some life in a way I think is kind of an undervalued yeah. asset there. And also it ties yeah. into, you know, baseball and history with the Negro League Baseball Museum sure. there, being yeah. there. But, but yeah, there so. may be, yeah, there may seem to be some, a lot of other variables in play well, there. Well, one other interesting site, um, and, I, uh, you know, it all kind of depends on how things move with Jackson County, which, you know, is not exactly predictable. Uh, you know, there are folks who look at the site of the Jackson County Jail, uh, and uh, there's a parking lot there, and all of this is right next door to the Sprint Center. 
uh, as a potential ballpark site. And there's also a state office building in there that, you know, maybe if the state of Missouri ever wanted to get involved in helping the city with this could, uh, you know, provide that land. Uh, you know, that, that, that would be a, a site that would be right in the heart of things. I mean, again, right next to the Sprint Center and, of course, close to the Power and Light District and all the other bars and restaurants that have popped up in the Central Business District. Uh, you know, the other, but the wild card is there is just, you know, whether Jackson County, number one, whether they finally pull the trigger on building a new jail and, and moving out of that current place, and also whether they want to be involved in assisting with a downtown ballpark. And, of course, you know, because they've got a vested interest in the Royals staying out there where they are at the mm-hmm. Truman Sports Complex. Uh, however, if a new owner of the Royals says, I really want to do this, and if Jackson County still wants to be a player, maybe they'd want to sign on and, and they would have a great chunk of real estate that they could provide for a potential ballpark. I did want to touch upon the politics of a little bit. I mean, we've got a lot of moving parts. You've got yeah. Jackson County. Sure. You've got the sure. state of Missouri. Uh, the Kansas City Star advocated a by-state approach, which we know that's been very difficult in the past. Right. Uh, current Mayor Quentin Lucas said during the campaign that, quote, we need a new base, downtown baseball stadium like I need a new Maserati. It'd be cool to have, but I don't have the money. So, you know, right. maybe that was just campaign rhetoric. What's your kind of take on the politics here? You know, how many obstacles are downtown stadium boosters facing when it comes to getting something built? Well, there's, well, you know, politics, it's, you know, in terms of Jackson County and whether they would be willing to participate in a conversation that clearly would diminish their uh, control they've got right now over the Royals and the Chiefs. And, of course, you can't forget that, you know, when the lease expires out of the Truman Sports Complex, it's not just the Royals that are in play, it's Chiefs. I mean, they've got a deal where they're simultaneous. So anybody coming up with an idea for the Royals is going to have to come up with an idea, too, with the Chiefs. Of course, that would be maybe easier if the Chiefs wanted to build a new stadium out there, and then they could knock down Kaufman and have even more room to play with out there. But, you know, now we're really speculating. But, you know, I, I, the, this, I think, you know, Mayor Lucas was interviewed before we knew there was going to be a new owner for the Royals. And so I think the world has changed significantly by John Sherman suddenly becoming, you know, the new owner. And I'm sure the city uh, would be more than willing to uh, consider this idea, you know, and they certainly don't want to foot the entire bill. And there's going to be obviously a big push to try to get as much private money invested in this as possible. Um, which actually is another interesting benefit with that East Village site. It's part. It's located in what they call a federal opportunity zone. Um, I think that's the right term for it. There's a. It, it was a program that was enacted in the last tax bill, which basically sets aside areas in, and uh, in distressed parts of cities where people can develop there and get major tax breaks from the federal government. And the East Village is located within one of these federal opportunity zones. So if you could get up some significant private investors to go along with building a ballpark there, they could uh, conceivably use it as a big tax break in their federal income taxes, which, you know, obviously is a big draw. Um, so really, yeah, the, 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 the politics of it would be a lot of it would have to do with, you know, Jackson County A being willing to, to play ball, to use a tired cliche. And also, you know, whether uh, you could, over, the Royals themselves could overcome some of the potential blowback from fans who really do enjoy Kaufman and the suburban setting it has and the ease of getting in and out, too. Some of the very things you mentioned, 
I mean, you know, one of the reasons I hear David Glass backed out back in 05 was he heard from season ticket holders they just didn't want to do the move. So I don't know how the Royals handled those internal politics, but I do think that the city and the county, if an attractive deal was put together that would involve significant public-private partnership, uh, I, I, you know, I, I think it's quite doable, especially if you have an owner who will still wait to hear from, because I don't think Mr. Sherman has been quoted by anybody as saying what his preference would be. Uh, you know, I think if the owner does come out and support, you know, it'd be a pretty powerful uh, phenomenon, especially when you can show people the, both the benefits to the team and to the city uh, for relocation to downtown. Yeah, it seems like we're in the very early stages if, if this oh, happens at all. No. And, and you're right, well, Char- yeah. Sherman hasn't said anything. He hasn't said anything. But, you know, he's he's a new guy who's familiar with how downtown ballpark can work in a place like Cleveland because he's got a big ownership stake in the Cleveland Indians. So he knows how it works. And from everything I've heard and read, he's very much a civic booster. Uh, he lives here in Kansas City. You know, Mr. Glass uh, does not. Uh, and he seems to have a history of wanting to do the right thing for his community. And uh, there's a lot of evidence that shows a downtown ballpark would not only do the right thing for the community, but it would also help the team as far as additional revenues coming in. Right. So, you know, I know we're really early on, but what if you were to guess 15 years from now, we're taking in a Royals game, what are the odds that that Royals game will be downtown, if you had to kind of put it on? I think the odds are very high that in 15 years, if I'm still kicking, <laughs> I'll be able to hop on a streetcar from where I live uh, near the plaza and go to a ball game in downtown Kansas City. I think the Mr. Sherman coming on board suddenly tilted the balance away from staying put at Kaufman. And people have to remember there's going to have to be a huge amount of money put into building a new stadium out at the Truman Complex because I doubt, and this is personal, but I doubt the Royals are going to go for another reboot of that facility uh, after it's going to be 60-plus years old by then. So we're going to have to pay a lot of money to keep the Royals here, whether it's going to be downtown or out there at 435 and 70. So I'm betting the economics and the benefits of a downtown ballpark are going to, and a new owner are going to make the or tilt the balance towards downtown. Well, I think we're certainly embarking on a really interesting era of Royals baseball, and we'll have to see oh, what yeah, happens with fun. the team. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, no, it's it's nice to be you know because I mean it just there's a you can definitely feel the fresh air coming in right now as far as thinking about the team and its place in the community, and uh, so it, it's kind of, yeah it is exciting. Yeah, I think our fans are definitely excited, especially on our side. I think they're just waiting to see what John Sherman says and does. And, and uh, uh, you know, no right. matter what he does, I think it's going to be a, a very different and very interesting. So, But, Kevin Collison, this has been a very illuminating, illuminating conversation. I, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, this has been great fun, Max. I appreciate it and uh, enjoyed the conversation. Well, that will do it for this show. Many thanks to Sean Newkirk and Craig Brown, as well as our guest Kevin Collison for being on the show. And thanks to all the readers and listeners of Royals Review, and we'll talk to you next time.